You know, it's exciting to be here again, uh, uh, proclaiming God's word to you to be again here in the book of Philippians. And that is where we are tonight, the book of Philippians chapter 1, verses uh, 12 to 18. Philippians 1, 12 to 18. And I would invite you to uh, turn there now if you haven't already. Now, we've been going through verses 1 to 11 for several months now in, in these, these evening services. And, and really, those, those verses represent a, a series of introductory remarks that Paul makes in the book. Um, in those remarks, Paul expresses his, his thanksgiving and his joy to God that, uh, for this church and their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He expresses his confidence in their salvation and uh, reminds them that indeed their salvation is entirely of God, entirely of grace, entirely of Jesus. He um, uh, he instructs them and he encourages them in describing his prayer life for them and he expresses his deep, deep affection for them. But at the end of these verses, as we transition into verse 12, Paul moves from introductory remarks into the meat of this letter. And this is what he says. He says, starting in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, we can summarize what Paul just said as a Pauline personal update. And I call it a personal update because that's what it is. Paul is describing what's going on with him while he sits in prison. I call it a Pauline personal update because this is the Apostle Paul. He's not going to talk about prison food or how the guards are treating him or the ambiance. He's going to talk about what the Lord is doing uh, through him with respect to the gospel. And he, he begins sitting in jail in a place hostile to the gospel under an emperor who is hostile to Christianity facing a possible death sentence, he tells the church at Philippi that the saving work of God is advancing, not in spite of Paul's circumstances, but because of Paul's circumstances. Now, it isn't all roses and unicorns, but Paul is nonetheless rejoicing because his master is accomplishing his saving purposes through Paul's chains. And that's our passage in a nutshell this evening, we're of course going to walk through it in a little more detail than that. Uh, and to do that, I'm breaking this up into three sections. First, uh, we'll look at verses 12 to 14, which I am titling the Unchained Gospel. And we'll see there that Paul begins by noting that while he himself is in chains, the gospel is free. We'll then look at verses 15 to 17, and Paul gives us what is likely a warning. He tells the church that while the gospel is spreading, not everyone is preaching with right motives, and we'll call that section the selfish evangelists. And then finally, in verse 18, 
Paul shows the church at Philippi what it means to be a faithful servant of Christ, and we're going to call that section the servant's heart. So 12 to 14, the unchained gospel, verses 15 to 17, the selfish evangelists, and verse 18, the servant's heart. And we're just going to walk through those, and I'll make hopefully practical application as we go. But as we do that, before we jump into that, let's ask the Lord's time, our Lord's blessing on our time this evening. Lord, it is a privilege again to dig into your word. It is a privilege to unpack what it says here. I pray that you would give us fertile hearts, Lord, that are ready to receive the, the word, that we would receive the truth, that we would listen and, and heed it and, and, and cherish it and grow by it, Lord. Give me the right words to say in the right way. May uh, you be magnified and glorified tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so jumping into the text, as I noted, verse 12 is the transition from introductory matters to the heart of the the letter of the Church of Philippi, and Paul begins by saying something that is, frankly, fairly counterintuitive, namely that the gospel has made progress. Verse 12 says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, for Christians, for those who truly care about God's saving work in the world, this is an awesome and encouraging message. Paul is in prison, yes. Paul is in chains, yes. But the gospel? The gospel is not shackled and the gospel is not muzzled. While the devil may have attempted to shut the mouth of Paul and with him the proclamation of Christ, he has utterly failed. And more than that, not only has he utterly failed, that which was intended to mute the word of God has instead amplified it. And that's because the the progress of the gospel is not left up to chance. It is left up to the hands of a sovereign God. Uh, When Jesus commissioned the disciples to become apostles and go out and make disciples of all the nations in Matthew 28, he began that directive with all authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. Our going and making disciples is founded on the authority of Jesus and the gospel will succeed. In Matthew 16, 18, when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus told Peter that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God is in control, and God has ordained that the gospel will go forward, it will penetrate into Satan's domain, and it will cause to be reborn people from every tribe and tongue and nation. The gospel and the church's proclamation of it is inevitable, invincible, and unstoppable. It will penetrate all the nations, it will overwhelm the gates of hell, and any persecution, any attack, any attempt to snuff it out will ultimately fail. And this text, like much of church history, shows us that any attempt to extinguish the fire of the gospel will likely do little else than to fan its flames. It will only succeed in fanning its flames. And this is, this is exciting. If what matters is mission, if what matters is God's saving purposes in the world accomplished through the church, then this should be of infinite encouragement to us to know that the Lord's purposes cannot be thwarted. It's an infinite encouragement to know that our enemies, powerful as though they may be, cannot successfully derail the gospel. Now, while verse 12 tells us the gospel has advanced, verse 13 tells us what that actually means. That's what the so that uh, in verse 13 is referring to. And specifically, Paul points us to two ways in which the gospel has advanced. First, he says that, quote, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment 
is for Christ. This is the first way in which the gospel has advanced because of Paul's chains. And what he's saying here is it's not just the imperial guard. He says all the rest, it has become known to all the rest, everybody who is aware or watching Paul's imprisonment, they've come to understand that Paul is not in prison uh, because of some dark and evil thing that he did. He is not in prison for being a murderer. He's not in prison for being a thief. He's not in prison for any evil thing that he may have done. His imprisonment is for Christ. Paul's imprisonment is an act of persecution, and Paul is in jail because of the message he preached, because of the mission the Lord gave him, because of the Savior who bought him. And imprisoning Paul under those terms has actually brought a spotlight on the real reason why Paul is in prison. Imprisoning Paul has, 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 has exposed those around Paul to the very thing that Paul's chains were supposed to silence. As one commentator put it, Paul's imprisonment is itself a proclamation of Christ. So yes, the first way that Paul's imprisonment has advanced the gospel is that Paul's imprisonment itself has proclaimed Christ. But that isn't the only way that the gospel has shown forth. Paul tells us also uh, there in verse 14, uh, he says, Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul is saying in the first place that unbelievers have, have, have been exposed to the gospel by virtue of Paul's imprisonment. But here he's saying it's not just unbelievers who have been impacted by Paul's chains. Those who belong to Christ have seen it. And as a result, they're out there preaching all the more. And this isn't one or two people. This isn't a couple of skilled evangelists. No, Paul says most of the brethren, literally the majority of believers, at least those in the city where Paul is currently being held, they're out there preaching Jesus. Now, I think to understand this, I think we need to take special note of of what Paul says at the end of verse 14 when he says that these believers are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And as I read those words, that doesn't seem to be the normal, typical hesitancy that we feel when we're evangelizing. This isn't like the, I'm hesitant to preach the gospel to my neighbor because they may not like me, type fear of man sort of thing. It doesn't strike me that's what Paul is talking about. This, this feels more like something has, has chilled the, the preaching of Christ and Paul's imprisonment has kick-started it. And that tracks with the content or the context for this letter. Paul's in prison, most likely in the city of Rome, under Emperor Nero. Uh, Nero is certainly not a fan or friend to Christianity, and we know that persecution at this time is occurring. Christianity is still illegal. It's likely that in these conditions, the church in Rome was laying low. Uh, Again, the empire was not a friendly place to Christians. Persecution is incurring, and it will soon get worse under Nero. And it's likely that the church in Rome was playing it safe. So what I think Paul is saying here is, not anymore. Seeing the apostle in chains was enough for the men and women in Rome to decide to preach the Lord Jesus Christ come what may. And much of this preaching, Paul says, was done out of love. That's what verse 16 says. He says, some preach, quote, out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. That was Paul's charge. His charge from the Lord Jesus was the defense and confirmation of the gospel. His job was to see it advanced. And many brothers and sisters saw Paul fulfilling his duty, risking his life. And out of love for him, probably to encourage him, they got out there and they preached Jesus themselves. 
And so not only was Paul's imprisonment itself a proclamation of Jesus, it also inspired the majority of Christians in Rome, however many people that was, to put their own lives on the line and preach Christ themselves. Paul's imprisonment has in fact advanced the gospel, and as a fun historical fact, it's had some pretty surprising results. Listen to how Paul ends the book of Philippians, specifically in chapter 4, verses 21 to 22. Chapter 4, 21 to 22. Paul says, The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now this probably doesn't mean Nero's family. It, It probably means his guards, his servants, but either way, Paul's chains have, have advanced the gospel so much that it has penetrated into the very household of the most powerful man in the world. Because the devil sought to imprison one of the spokesmen of the gospel, because the devil sought to silence the gospel, not only is the emperor's household being saved, but Rome itself has been invaded by the gospel. And again, for those who who care about God saving uh, purposes in the world, which I trust is every single person in this room, this is an awesome message. The gospel cannot be chained. It cannot be imprisoned. It cannot be overcome. It will do its job. It will succeed. And in the deepest of ironies of the devil imprisons, beats, tortures, kills Christians, it will only inspire others to faithful gospel ministry. And we see this over and over and over and over again in church history. We see missionaries who stand up and do great things because they read about others who suffered in the cause of Christ decades or centuries earlier. And I would expect as well that as we're going through this tonight, Paul's experience may even be inspiring people in this room. It it did for me. It inspired and encouraged me, and I hope it does the same for everyone here. I pray that these verses, in these verses, we would catch what Paul is really talking about, a glimpse of a sovereign Lord Jesus whose unchained and ever-victorious gospel is accomplishing his purposes in the world no matter what. I pray that we would all be inspired and encouraged to throw ourselves into the saving work of God in the world. And just a tiny side note, when I say saving work of God in the world, and, and most of the time tonight when I talk about the gospel in this context, absolutely this is you know, evangelisms and missions to a certain extent, but don't think about it strictly in those terms. The, the local church, I'm kind of echoing what Pastor Greg has been preaching on for the last two weeks and will do for, for seven others, the local church is the engine, the hub, the, the, the center of God's saving purposes in this world. If, if we want to, the gospel to advance, it starts here. It starts here with us, with body life, and it radiates outward. So any inspiration, any encouragement from the gospel advancing in this text, anything we say tonight, it applies not just to witnessing to your neighbor, it applies to loving one another in this congregation as well. Now, having said all of that, I mentioned at the beginning that this is not all roses and unicorns. I don't know why I'm using that turn of phrase, but it's not all roses and unicorns. And in verse 15, we learn that not everyone who preaches Christ is faithful. Paul's imprisonment has resulted in a flurry of gospel preaching, but not all of it glorifies God. In verses 15 to 17, Paul talks about two groups. One who preaches Christ out of love and one group that preaches Christ out of selfish ambition. And it is this latter group that makes me title this second section, The Selfish 
evangelists. Here's how Paul puts it in those two verses. He says, starting in verse 15, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. There's two groups. Now, as we read this verse, uh, these verses, there is a difficult question that we kind of have to tackle, and it, it will have practical implications for us, and you know, reasonable people can land in different places. But the question we have to ask is, these, these selfish evangelists, these bad apples, exactly who are they? And I don't mean, like, who are they in the, the context of the time. I mean, are they false teachers? Are they unbelievers masquerading as believers? Or are they Christians who are acting sinfully. And I think frighteningly and and tragically enough, the way Paul talks here, the answer is probably that third one. I I, I think Paul is representing that these are Christians, not false teachers or or unbelievers who are acting sinfully. And what I want to do now is explain why I think that's the case and why it matters. But we're going to go through each of those categories one by one. So first, can they be false teachers? Can these guys be false teachers? And, and indeed, a lot of commentators have gone that route. But a false teacher is someone who presents a false gospel, and that's clearly not what's happening here. While Paul takes these people to task over their motives, he rejoices in what they're preaching in verse 18. And if they were preaching a false gospel, Paul would never do that. In Galatians 1, Paul is increased, or incredibly clear. Anyone preaching a false gospel is to be condemned. They are accursed. They're not treated as brothers, and what they preach is to be rejected. Paul would never sanction a false gospel or the proclamation of a counterfeit Jesus. To use maybe a modern example, um, if, if what was being preached was the, the Mormon version of Jesus, Paul would be aghast. But he isn't here. He's rejoicing, which means we know that this isn't a false gospel. The real gospel, or the real Jesus is being preached just with wrong motives. And so it's highly unlikely these guys are false teachers. Now, other commentators want to call these people unbelievers. And to be sure, I'm sure there are unbelievers in their midst. But that isn't how Paul talks about them here. Now, listen to verses 14 and 15 one more time. He says, Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So in in verse 14, there's one mass of uh, people preaching. And in verse 15, Paul divides them into two camps based on their motives. One preaching from goodwill and one preaching from envy and rivalry. But both groups are a subset of that one mass of people preaching. In other words, Paul's imprisonment has inspired a bunch of of evangelizing, some from envy and some from goodwill. But go back to the beginning of verse 14. That one mass of people preaching, what does Paul call them? He calls them brothers. He even says their preaching comes from being confident or trusting in the Lord. And and so that, that language seems pretty clear to me that Paul is at least characterizing them as Christians. He's not describing them as if they were false teachers or unbelievers, he's characterizing them, talking about them as if they were sinning Christians. Let's be really clear. They're definitely sinning. They are are preaching out of envy. They're preaching out of rivalry. They're preaching out of selfish ambition. They're even preaching to hurt Paul, to afflict him in prison. Under no illusions that this is bad. This is really, really, really bad. And I 
absolutely see why some commentators want to throw these guys under the bus and out of the church. And maybe you agree, which would be totally fine. Maybe, maybe you're struggling, you can't reconcile how someone can be out there preaching Christ, relying on the Lord in faith, and yet do so with the aim of hurting another brother in Christ. But I think Paul's talking about them as Christians for a reason. I think there's a lesson here for us. I think this text shines a light on the reality of our sinful, deceitful hearts. I think this is a warning for the church at Philippi and for us. Brothers and sisters, it should be no surprise to us that we are pretty darn terrible by nature. Who we were before Christ was hardcore, God-hating, truth-suppressing rebels, full stop. And we, we shouldn't kid ourselves about who we were apart from grace. In fact, to do so is to diminish the glory of God in saving us. Instead, we should own the reality of who we were apart from grace. We were terrible. And while Jesus has set us free from the dominion of sin, from it having mastery over us, we are still capable of sinning terribly. The the best example is King David, the the man who was described as the man after God's own heart, nonetheless committed adultery and murder. We are still capable of sinning terribly. And that's what seems to be happening here. And rather than kind of shying away from the harsh reality that believers in Christ can sin so terribly, rather than shying away from that, we should let the existence of these selfish evangelists be a warning to us to examine our own motives as we proclaim Christ as we minister in the local church. We should, we should let this be a warning to us to guard our hearts from selfishness and from pride, which is the root of the issue here. We should let this be an example to, 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 to see even the smallest bit of self-exaltation of what we do in the church as a cancer. May we diagnose such motives quickly in ourselves and ruthlessly dispose of them because after all, brothers and sisters, this is not only the cancer, it's a, it's a subtle one. It's one that can look really good from the outside. I mean, based on what Paul says here, these guys had technically accurate messages. It's possible they were even witty and brilliant and, and, and articulated things well. And it appears they, had been, they were bold and fearless. Their evangelism uh, had a sense of being self-sacrificing. They were, after all, putting themselves in danger, preaching Christ in Rome. From the outside, what they were doing looks pretty darn good. Yet the preaching was also sinfully selfish. And so, yes, this can be a subtle cancer. We can live our lives and minister in the church, in our community, in one of two ways. We can do so in pretense, which would be a way of saying hypocrisy, doing things for show, lacking sincerity, doing things for ourselves other than Jesus. Or we can do so in truth, in sincerity, in purity of motive, out of love for God and for our neighbor. And certainly an application for us is is may we never follow in the footsteps of these selfish evangelists and make our master's mission about ourselves. May we guard our hearts and live with the zeal and the sincerity that ought to characterize those for whom Christ died. Uh, Zeal and sincerity, I'd note, not coincidentally, that Paul models for us in the very next verse. Which brings us to our third section in verse 18. And I'll remind you, I titled this section, The Servant's Heart. And I did that because verse 18 begins with the words, what then? What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now the words, what then, are important because they remind us to look back at verse 17. 
And again, these, these sinful, selfish evangelists weren't just preaching selfishly. They weren't just preaching to exalt themselves uh, or preaching out of envy and rivalry. They were preaching to hurt Paul. After all, verse 17 says, The former proclaimed Christ again out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. These evangelists were aiming at causing Paul some measure of grief and pain, and that's what makes verse 18 so striking. What Paul is saying in verse 18 is, yeah, these guys are coming at me. So what? I don't matter. I don't matter. What really matters is the Lord Jesus Christ and the saving work that he is doing in the world. What matters is that Jesus is preached, not me. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like the exact opposite of the example of these selfish evangelists. It's the exact opposite of the attitude and heart that these people had. And that actually, as a side note, has, has helped me make sense of something that has historically bothered me with verse 18. Because verse 18 has always perplexed me a little bit because it, it sort of looks like Paul is just glossing over what these guys are doing. It, it always kind of looked like, you know, even though they're doing something terribly, terribly, terribly wrong, Paul doesn't rail against them. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't say anything you know, really harsh at all. He kind, of, he kind of just skips over it. But what he's doing here, I think, is modeling a better way for us. He's showing us what we ought to do. Paul is a servant of Christ, and a few verses from now, he'll say to this church that for him to live is Christ. His, his whole life is about Jesus. It's entirely about him. And because it is, Paul is focused on the task that Jesus has set him on, the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So rather than railing against these sinful evangelists, Paul is instead showing the church at Philippi and us that the servant's heart that our master wants is one that zealously puts the master and the master's business first. The master and his mission is what matters even if it comes at a cost to us. The servant's heart that our master wants from us is one that is so focused on what our Lord has called us to that we can rejoice, as Paul is here, when we're wronged so long as our master's mission is furthered. This is the sort of attitude and heart that, that Jesus wants from his servants. This is the sort of attitude and heart that Paul wants the church at Philippi to have. And this is the sort of attitude and heart that we ourselves, by way of application, should be aiming for from this text. So, that's the simple one, right? Uh, by application, let's all follow Paul's example. Now that, of course, is really easy to say, right? Don't be like the bad people, go be like Paul. It's really easy to say it. And so rather than leave it there, I just want to spend two minutes concluding by gently reminding us all how to do that. And this is truly a reminder. Um, and actually, I've already implicitly mentioned it, but Paul has this servant's heart fundamentally and importantly, because he is passionately in love with Jesus. I already cited verse 21, where Paul says that for him to live is Christ. Let me finish that verse. He says, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And then in verse 23, he explains why. He says, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. And what Paul's saying there is, death is better than life, because when Paul dies, he gets to go be with his beloved. For Paul, everything in this world, everything he has, everything he had, everything he could have in the future, it's all rejectable in an instant if he gets to go be with Jesus. 
And that's love. Paul's servant heart stems from his passionate love for his master. And if we want to have the heart that Paul is modeling, we need to have the affection that is at its root. And Paul loves Jesus as he does because fundamentally Paul lives every single day of his life at the foot of the cross. He never gets beyond the horror and the wonder and the joy of the cross. So if you want to have Paul's love or Paul's heart, you've got to have his love. And you want to have his love, you need to keep your eyes, as Paul does, laser-focused on the cross of Jesus Christ. After all, when we feel the weight of who we were before Christ, when we reflect on the, the, the unthinkable sacrifice of the Father who through the Spirit put his Son to death, when we reflect on the horror of the suffering that Jesus endured, when we reflect on the, the fact that, that the sheer undeserved nature of it, how terrible we are, as we saw earlier and how much grace there is in what Jesus did. And when we're not just intellectually aware of those truths, but when, we, when we, we feel those things deep down, when that happens, we will find ourselves loving our Savior all the more. And his mission, as a result, will take on a greater and greater place of importance in our lives. The strength, brothers and sisters, to sit in prison, undeserved, facing a possible death sentence, Slandered, watching petty men take their shot at you and yet rejoice sincerely because Jesus is being proclaimed, the strength for that. It comes from someone whose mind and heart together, deep down, sincerely understands and appreciates who Christ is and what Christ has done for them. And honestly, brothers and sisters, I can't think of a better segue into communion than that. Um, this is exactly the sort of thing that we need because the Lord's Supper does exactly what I'm, I'm hoping that we all do here. The Lord's Supper invites us to behold our God on the cross, to remember that he is there because of us, to remember and to know deep down his love and his grace because what we deserved is not a substitute but a death sentence. So tonight, may uh, just by way of, of absolute conclusion, may the bread and the cup fulfill in its purpose and remind us of what we need to focus on. Let the Lord's Supper remind us of the cross. May it remind us to feel the weight of what Jesus did on it. And may it cause us to fall in love with our Savior all the more. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just these, these encouraging, helpful, short reminders that you are God, you are in control, that you have ordained that the gospel would go forward in this world, that it would save all those whom you have chosen, that it would be invincible, unstoppable, that no matter what obstacles we face, whether that's uh, uh, an angry devil, a hostile world, or the sin in our own hearts, that you are in control, that you will work all things together for our good, that you will accomplish your purpose. I pray, Lord, that in your grace we would guard our hearts tonight, tomorrow, this week, this month, that we would examine ourselves to see whether what we're doing in our own walks and ministries is, is, is truly for you or if we have taken on that subtle cancer of self-exaltation and selfishness, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that as we examine that and repent to whatever extent is necessary, Lord, that we would remember, cherish, 
and trust in the cross of Christ, that we would go back there, not simply resolve to do better and grit our teeth and will it, but that we would go back to the cross, that we would lay at its feet, that we would tremble before our Savior who loved us enough to endure all of the wrath that we deserved. And that in remembering that, Lord, our hearts would be lifted up, encouraged, inspired, that we would love our Savior and that we would minister all the more effectively and sincerely before you for his glory in Jesus' name.